Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Dr. Hazel Wallace has been making a name for herself online as the food medic. She's also an NHS doctor and a registered nutritionist. Today, she'll join me in studio to talk about her new book, The Female Factor, and how she's using her voice to change up a male centric health model. And clinical psychologist Dr. Eddie Murphy will also join us on how we can become our true selves. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? This has been a good week. I seem to have, I'm glad to report, come out of whatever funk I'd gotten myself into at the start of the year, which I know I've spoken about before. I kind of attributed or at least the timing seemed to come in line with the supposed end of the pandemic and getting back to normal life. And I was finding it a little bit harder to do that or where I wanted things to go. And when things happen like that, you always know or I always know it's time to get still and do a little bit of inner work. So I've been taking on all kinds of endeavours, which is why this show suits me so well, because I get put in front of so many. And I've spoken to various Life Coaches, I recently completed Fiona Brennan of the Positive Habits course, Light Up Your World, which I've spoken about here on the show. And that called for a lot of her teaching you about all the different ways to have a look at your your life, your behaviours. And there was a lot of journaling, which at the start I completely resisted. And now I seem to be in the flow of. So I took that on. And something I thought I'd mention here was that I started speaking to a therapist for the first time in my life. Now, I've gone to all manner of people over the years, as I've just touched on there, wonderfully intuitive, brilliant people who I've laid out life's issues in front of and gotten loads of great advice, but never at this level of a, of a psychotherapist. And I'm hesitant to talk about it here because I suppose of the stigma we have and uh, that even I've had myself because I felt there wasn't really anything wrong with me. I'm a very fortunate person and this was just a bit of a funk, as I said. But I'm talking about it on the show today because I feel it's important to say that I think that is enough. I know not everyone can afford the luxury of paying for therapy and that the waiting lists are flooded with a spectrum of people with all kinds of issues, some very serious and even life threatening. But I always stopped myself from from booking in because I felt therapy was for somebody with maybe crippling anxiety or depression or someone who'd experienced serious trauma in their lives. And yes, that is true but not at the exclusion of anyone else. We all go through life experiences, changes. Sure, we've just been through a monumental one altogether. And sometimes it's okay to reach out for help and talk things through. We don't always have to put on a brave face and get on with it. It's actually braver to seek and change it up. So I've had maybe four or five sessions and it's given me a real chance to examine certain behaviours, thought patterns, life events, and in some way make a bit more sense of them. What I found interesting is there's no magic wand. There's no advice from the professional on what you should do. Just a professionally held space for you to talk and a little nudge here and there. Again, I'm finding myself chomping at the bit to be finished and kind of get my my medal and certificate and have somebody tell me I'm fixed. It's so funny. Every time we start a session, I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I thought about what you said last time and, you know, I'm grand now. And obviously I am grand, but... 
then there's another 45 minutes to an hour of me delving into to more stuff. And I suppose it, there's never an end to it, although at some stage I'm sure I'll say I'm done. It is pricey, as I mentioned, but I see it as an investment. I've spent the same amount on getting my hair done as I have on a session. So I'm just going to allow the process, see what I learn. And dare I even say I'm actually enjoying it. So I thought it was worth a mention. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And speaking of all that, I can offer you in some way a free session of sorts, although none of it personalised, as I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Eddie Murphy, clinical psychologist, perhaps best known for his work with Operation Transformation. He's also an author and a mental health advocate, and he joins us now to talk about becoming your real self. Hello, Eddie. How are you? Good morning, Claire. Good to talk to you. Eddie, it's something that you have written extensively on. It, it, it's the title of one of your books is Becoming Your Real Self. So what does that mean? What does the, the real self mean? Well, Claire, I suppose I, I'm, just, I'm coming from, I'm in healthcare over 30 years, clinical psychologist, and often people come to see you, see you. And what I, over time, obviously a lot of people with so many different, like a GP, a clinical psychologist is like a GP of emotional health, where people come in with, whether it's children, adolescents, adults, but huge amount of people I've identified, you know, in, in I've seen have what I believe is uh, they invest in a false front, and inside the real self is neglected. And I believe the more energy people put into the false front and not into their real self, in that gap, it's where uh, there's negativity, stress, and uh, anger, and all the low self-esteem and. All those issues that can emerge when you're not investing into your real self. And what will be the impact of that? Well, the impact over time is that uh, people put this, because they're putting energy into a false false front, their their relationships can be impaired. To me, actually, it becomes a stressor. And when it becomes a stressor, it's almost like their buffer zone. Like we, are, I think we have a sort of a buffer zone when it comes to our well-being, and we can take on, you know, in terms of our levels of resilience. Uh, so things that impact on our resilience, like sleep and exercise. And but if we're putting an energy into into a front and not into our real self, and say it's like a social media front, it, it it's there's a leak, and in our buffer zone, we can become overwhelmed. And then when we become overwhelmed. Uh, I think it captures us. And then sometimes we then, if it comes into that clinical space, it can be depression, anxiety, and all those those other areas. Um, so my sort of the core message really and for people to think about is, what, how do you sustain that real self? How do you put that energy into your real self? And one of the things that way of doing that, I think, is looking at the evidence base of positive psychology. So for example, for over... Like over a hundred years, psychologists were asked, "Like, what's wrong with this person? What, what, what's the?" And we, it was it was very deficit orientated. Whereas now, what we ask is, or what we ask many times is, "What keeps well people well?" It's a really fascinating question. What keeps well people well? And in terms of uh, uh, we we know a life of, often it's described now as a, a life of pleasure, meaning, and engagement. 
pleasure, meaning, and engagement. And for example, if you think about it, because recently our pleasure, I used, I used to focus a lot more on meaning and engagement, and I will later on in our, in our conversation. But pleasure was really disrupted in, during COVID, I found. Did you find that, Claire? I found all three seemed to be lacking Did a you? little bit. Yeah, meaning, engagement. We were just sort of into survival mode. But you're right, pleasure or joy is not something that's often associated with health and wellness. I think we look at it that it's something that has to be punishing or you have to work really hard at. And we forget about the importance of fun and play and pleasure and joy. And indeed, yeah. And that, that that was one area that for me, because, for example, one of my go-tos around my well-being is around maybe travel, and, and simple travel or whatever. And um, that was sort of taken away during that two-year period. Obviously, I work in healthcare, so we were extremely busy as well. But that whole ple- pleasure bit was, was absent. And now it's sort of coming back into play. And I realise the importance of having pleasurable moments well the thing about pleasure what's really interesting is imagine how i offered all your uh, listeners a 99 cone it's a beautiful day and there's you can have flakes and sprinkles and chocolate on it and i'm sure hopefully that's going down very well and i gave you a second cone straight away after the first one if you were up for it but after a while you find that that pleasure is short lasting okay and that's in a way there is a sort of, or even though we, if we take breaks and holidays, pleasure is short lasting, but it's really important. But meaning and engagement, I believe, or and the evidence would say, is the dynamo to our well-being. What gives us meaning and engagement? And there's different pathways that have uh, been identified for that for individuals, whether that's true wisdom where people like may go to a love of learning or curiosity or creativity or getting perspective having so developing that pathway imagine like see these um, like orchards like you go into the orchard of wisdom and you you are the orchard of courage where if you are fearful you might try new things you might respond to the question what would you do if you were not afraid? I've often I do talks for different organisation communities and schools, and we talk about this. Like, what would you do if you were not afraid? It can be a very powerful question to uh, engage us in a, a space of change. Um, and sometimes the greatest bravery is faced by those who face their fear. The other one then around humanity and social justice. And that can that can be involved in in movements around uh, justice, around green issues, or uh, around LGBT rights, and areas that uh, give people a sense of meaning. For some people, it can be around spirituality, or nature, or beauty, or awe. But finding something that's bigger than themselves. Yeah, and that lights you up inside. And I think often we look to bigger things and think we have to reinvent the wheel or solve climate change. We forget about those small little steps like you mentioned, like championing family life, spending time in nature, even volunteering. I think anyone that has been a coach in the GAA, they forget that they are giving back to their community and they're involved in a WhatsApp group that's arranging matches. And and it does. I mean, I'm sure sometimes it can feel... um, like it's just part of life, but you forget that these are things that are giving your life meaning and engagement, as you say. Do you think we just get caught up in the in the hamster wheel of of working and living paycheck to paycheck and we think, forget to stop I, I, and reflect? 
Yeah, I don't think it's for, so I think it's it's an opportunity to think about it for some time. I think there's ages and stages in our lives when we're extremely focused and we might go down one route, you know, if we're in um, family formation or uh, house formation or whatever, trying to get stuff together, we can get extremely focused in an area. And then sometimes we get a chance maybe to breathe or sometimes, and quite often you see it, people's bodies actually tell them, stop. The alarm systems goes off in the bodies, whether it's through uh, physical health issues or emotional health issues. Quite often the body's saying, here, hold on here. There, you, you know, you cannot pro- 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 progress at, the, at this uh, pace. This pace is, uh, is, is harmful. It's toxic. It's toxic to your relationships. It's toxic to you. It's toxic to your health. So it's time to stop and breed. It's time to stop read and show up and maybe show up in your own life in a different way and it doesn't not those big bang events that you're talking about but i think and we know what's really interesting from the science side of it we know that people who volunteer um get gain more than they give when they volunteer there's a i'm involved in uh uh, go green roots. It's uh, looking at how we shape our environment for healthier environments around uh, the power of the green and the power of the blue nature-based solutions. So the power of the green, obviously, uh, uh, mountains, forestry, uh, uh, blue lakes, rivers and sea. And I'm stuck in the Midlands. So we go to a lake up in the bog and it's our piece of heaven. So it is. And bringing our, our dog up there gives, gets me out and gives me that, that space. And, uh, beauty and being able to breed and being and gratitude and you can practice some of these in very small it's very I, one of the things about Ireland is it's an incredible country I think when we look at the just the, the greenness of it the beauty of it and it's about how do we plug into that because we know that it's soothing it's a balm for the levels of stress that we can experience and as you say it's it's evidence-based it's not just frivolous it actually is evidence-based what about then, that's the sort of positive psychology side. To be our real self, do we need to also embrace the negative or what's sometimes referred to as the, the shadow self, the parts of ourself that we don't like or that isn't as socially acceptable? Well, give us an example of that shadow self there. What do, what do you mean by that now? Like anger, um, jealousy, or all these okay, normal so traits, or even having a down day, or not yeah. having it all figured out. This sort of live your best life mentality. See, I, wouldn't nec- I wouldn't necessarily call them shadow components, really, because in life, if you want, if I was going to take you on a on a, a journey to on and through, there's five primary emotions in life. Um, love, joy, and happiness, we'll say, is one. Anger is another. Sadness fear and the last one is disgust and if you uh so those five most if you think that movie inside out it's a very brilliant movie a lot of uh, psychology in that movie uh, in terms of the the inputs into it and those like managing anger and when what happens is as our brain gets more complex our emotions get more complex so say in the anger you talk about jealousy frustration uh irritability all sort of fall. But if we can learn to manage these very powerful emotions, these five five emotions, I'm very, it's one of the areas I, I, I talk on about a lot actually, is like, so for example, anger, it means um, some people are, I'd love to maybe do another day and talk to you a little bit longer about anger because I have a whole way of thinking about anger that's quite interesting. But some people are imploders and some people are exploders. 
and some people are both imploders and exploders. And you can figure out what way you are. But anger means I've got something to say, but I'm not saying it in a healthy way. And being assertive is actually learning assertiveness skills. And that can be one that journey through uh, self-discovery is learning to be more assertive means then that you will reduce those levels of anger. But anger is a normal emotion. We can be just uh, have justified anger. Uh, so it's learning. So I wouldn't necessarily call them the shadow side because it's sort of it's making a moral judgment on them. But definitely, how to manage strong emotions is really powerful in our toolkit if we're going to manage our well-being and be our real self. Well, it's fascinating talking to you. We will definitely have you back, Dr. Eddie Murphy, clinical psychologist. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much, Claire. Really appreciate it. Now, Dr. Hazel Wallace is an NHS doctor, registered nutritionist and a best-selling author. She started the Food Medic blog in 2012 as a medical student in a bid to bridge the gap between conventional medical advice and developments in nutrition and lifestyle. She now has a massive social media following, a podcast, and with this, her third book, The Female Factor, she's using her voice to take on something even bigger. And she joins me in studio now. Hello, Hazel. Hello. Thanks for having me. So talk to us a bit about this change in direction. I mean, of course you've evolved as a person since mm. 2012, not only with life experience, but also more qualifications, more studies and a doctor. But when did you become conscious of the male-centric medical model we have? I think it happened gradually over the last couple of years. I, you know, have started online with as the food medic 10 years ago. And nutrition was my kind of primary focus then. But as I left medical school and qualified as a doctor and was working with patients, I noticed that there was this clear gap between how we treat men and women in the hospital. And also when it comes to the guidelines we're using, they're based on research that is largely based on male bodies, male mice and male cells. And simply like extrapolated to a woman with the assumption that we're just smaller versions of men, which is completely untrue because we have these fluctuating hormones, we can get pregnant. Physiologically, we're just very different. We're built different. And all of those things matter because it means like we'll respond to treatments differently. We will present with symptoms differently and we may require, you know, different forms of care. And so I just dipped my toe into the research and realised actually there's a huge gap here. And I realised that women were being misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, undertreated and felt like they weren't being heard. So that was, I, I just decided to write this book because I felt like there was nothing out there like it. And as a woman myself, and I doctored to many women, women, I felt like I needed to get that information out there. And your direct message inbox has been flooded from time to time with messages from women who said in a medical situation, they just felt they weren't being listened to. Yeah, I think there's one line in the book that I have and it's that it's almost as if women present with feelings and men present with symptoms. So we don't, a lot of women feel like it's all in their head or that people will just assume it's their hormones and it's not really a real you know, physical problem. And actually women are more likely to get a psychiatric diagnosis for a physical problem. So we're more likely to say it's anxiety when actually you're having a heart attack. Um, and heart disease is one of those things that is a really good example of this because heart disease is the biggest killer of men and women worldwide. But we 
assume it's a man's disease. And in the UK, for example, in the last 10 years, women were twice as likely to die from a heart attack. And it's not because women are coming into hospital and we're giving them poor care. It's because of both bias and biology. So when a woman experiences symptoms of a heart attack, she's less likely to think it's a heart attack because she's not aware that she could experience that. She's more likely to self-diagnose something else and more likely to self-medicate at home or put it off because she's got lots of other things to do. And then when she arrives at hospital, she's more likely to be misdiagnosed with something else. And that's down to us having biases as doctors that it you know, typically it's an older man who comes in with central crushing chest pain. But a woman might be experiencing a heart attack, but come in and um, may tell us her symptoms are more like palpitations or anxiety or heartburn. But they're all red flags for a heart attack as well. And even the diagnostic tests that we're using, they may not be well suited for women. They may be more accurate just for men. And so at each stage of the symptom onset to leaving hospital, the stacks are basically against women and which is why they have such poor outcomes. And why is the research men-centric? Is it any sort of defence that we do have fluctuating hormones, that if we're on a drug trial, for example, there is a chance we could get pregnant and there could be damage to the fetus? Is that enough of a reason to leave us out of studies altogether? It's a valid consideration, but I don't think it's an acceptable reason to exclude women. Um So you're right in that women have been historically excluded because of the fluctuating hormones across the menstrual cycle, across the lifespan, which in research terms is a nuisance because it's a bit of white noise. It can, you know, change the data um, and also the risk of pregnancy. So when it comes to drug trials, for example, ethics just wouldn't approve it. You know, there's ways of getting around those situations and you know women are lots of women are on contraception and that's a safe way of testing things but if we don't test we'll never know and in drug treatments for example there's a huge male bias and women are twice as likely to have an adverse reaction to drugs because of that because it's not just that we're smaller and and we're going to respond um in a way because we're more sensitive we've got smaller livers our gut motility is uh, a lot slower, so we absorb the drugs slower. We've got more body fat and drugs can stay within the fat in the body. So we excrete it slower. Our kidneys excrete it slower. So all of these reasons mean that the drug can typically hang around the body longer. And so um, we're, we might be more susceptible to the side effects or they may, might linger around longer. And we know this. We know this on a physiological level. I've learned at medical school but the fact that we've just been like, oh, well, it's just, you know, too much of too too much of a nuisance, really. So we'll just do it on men and we'll just test it on women once it's done. It's just not, I don't think it's something that we can accept anymore. We're just giving a, an adult dosage, but we're not accepting that that is going to affect a man and a woman very differently. And in fact... In the US, it's been well documented there have been certain drugs that have had to be taken off the market because they have caused serious harm to women. Yeah, absolutely. And the one example is Ambien, which is like a drug that people were taking for insomnia. And there was, you know, what they found was the next day women were having lots of accidents because they were still very drowsy. And so it's like that prolonged reaction to a drug, which could be fatal. So it's not just that, you know, you might have an allergy or a skin rash. It's that you could, you could 
have really serious fatal effects because of that. But aside from the research and the drug trials, you're looking to also change the narrative of how we view women in society, because I think that's really important. You're right. Mm. The fact that a woman will turn up and say she's crushing chest pains and they'll just assume it's anxiety and, and go more on an emotional sense. That really feeds into the narrative we have about women, that we are more emotional or perhaps we're really just really busy at home. And that just isn't factual anymore. No, I, it's it's so archaic and it's based in the like a very made up diagnosis of hysteria, which, you know, we say that women are hysterical. You'd never say a man's hysterical. And hysteria was this made up condition that was basically thought that it originated from the womb. And in terms of the symptoms of that, it was everything from, um, you know, being a little bit tired, being a bit irrational, being manic, um, being sexually aroused or not aroused enough. There was like, it was just such random symptoms that these male doctors were imposing on women. And I still think that mentality hangs around a bit. You know, if a woman's acting in a way that seems emotional, oh, it must be her hormones. It must be she's going through the menopause. She's pregnant. It's the time of the month. And while our hormones do influence our mood, they're not the only voice in the crowd and they're not the loudest. And in matter of fact, like when it comes to PMS, for example, the women who are the most socially supported, so have a supportive relationship or supportive people around them, are the ones who are less likely to experience PMS. And that's the biggest predictor. And it's the same when it comes to our mental health. Our relationships are the biggest predictor and hormones are not because all women experience those hormonal fluctuations, but not all women will experience mood changes during those kind of vulnerable periods. And obviously there are differences in our body makeup, but there's also a changing narrative on what a woman can do when it comes to strength and when it comes to athletic prowess. Mm. We can do just as much. Yeah. And that's another thing that is really interesting because women were typically advised not to exercise. And, um, you know, back in the research, the kind of, the reason, the rationale for it was that it would harm your fertility. And actually there was one phrase that was that your uterus would fall out, which is just completely nonsense. And I mean, excessive exercise and underfueling, i.e. not getting enough calories, can affect your fertility. But that's at a very extreme in cases and it can affect men as well. And women need to be active for their health and women can be just as strong. They can be just as fast as men. Yes, there's a performance gap, but that's also largely related to the fact that we've excluded women for a long time. Um, You know, one of the things I write about in the book is that the first female sports bra was only brought about in the late 70s and a woman made it out of her husband's jock straps. So two jock straps together. She like sewed them together in her living room with her friend and that was like called the jog bra and it was the first sports bra. And it's just, you know, it's the fact that a jock strap existed, you know, years before that, but then it took us this long to get a sports bra. And even now sports bras aren't scientifically accurate. So yeah, we're playing catch up, but it's it's not that we're inferior in terms of our athletic capabilities. And language is so important. You also talk in the book about when it comes to strength and fitness, we talk to men about bulking and building and with women it's it's toning and slimming. And I know men are susceptible, everybody is, 
to diet culture, but there's been a very different language around women, which has led, as you say, to underfueling and overexercising and a real impact on your mental health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you make a really good point. It's like a- anyone is susceptible to that like narrative that you should be bigger or you should be smaller, or you should look a certain way. Um, but anything that's pitched towards females in that fitness industry is usually tone, sculpt, slim, flat tummy, all of those kind of things. And there's so many supplements that like target women when it comes to their appearance, but also like their fertility. And they really feed on those insecurities and I you know even when it comes to food like there's nutritional considerations that women need to make um, even across the menstrual cycle but also during pregnancy after the menopause and then that's also wrapped up with with this uh, poor relationship that women tend to have about food because when you're a teenager that's when the messages start you know you know, you have to drop a dress size before holiday or cut this out of your diet or, you know, there's all that conversation. And so from a very young age, we're told that we should restrict, 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 make ourselves smaller. And in matter of fact, I think that is a really damaging message, not only for our mental health, but also our physical health. So you've got women who are really, you know, exercising from excessive amounts, underfueling, and then they're running into issues where they've lost their menstrual cycle, they can't get pregnant and they wonder how that how they got there. And tired all the time. I remember rocking up to my GP um, with two young kids, really tired, and she said it was almost the number one cause of women coming to her. This is what she heard all the time. And when I ditched diet culture in my late 30s, early 40s, that's when I really started to feel energy. Mm. the way it's supposed to be felt. And I think a lot of the time we just accept these low levels of how we feel as being normal. And we, we don't need that. It's so important to not just focus on size, to focus on how we feel and our overall and long-term health. Yeah, it's not normal to be tired all the time. It's not normal to be hungry all the time, you know, regardless of what you think is healthy. And I think um, going back to the menstrual cycle piece, so many women will lose their cycle and if they're not thinking about having babies they think that's fine and it's not your menstrual cycle it, there are actually doctors in the states that are calling for the menstrual cycle to be the fifth vital sign just like your blood pressure and your temperature because if you've lost your cycle or it's become irregular or it's become very light or it's become very heavy that's a sign that something's up and it might not even be related to your reproductive capacity. It might be related to the stress that you're under or the fact that you're not eating enough or you're overtraining. So if something happens to your cycle, don't ignore it. We have talked on this show before about the lack of research into women's health care. I've had a number of guests on about it. Um, I've spoken about Caroline Criado Perez and her book Invisible Women that talks about some of the everyday products in our life that are based and designed around men. And also we were talking about the menstrual cycle before the break and we've had Sinead Brophy, a wellbeing and menstrual cycle coach, saying the same. So it's really really heartening to have a medical doctor now beginning to talk about this. Have you had any sort of fear or apprehension about putting your head above the parapet and beginning to be critical of the system within which you've studied and worked? Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. And I have, you know, um, I'm not an obstetrician doctor, which is a typical women's health doctor. 
uh, quote unquote. And with this book, it's not a women's health book in that way. I'm expanding the definition to women's health to include total body health. And so initially I was like, am I the right person to write this book? But there is no specialty for for female health. There is no one doing that. There's no one practicing that. And so I thought, well, if it's not me, then who? So I just, I felt very passionate. I felt very frustrated. And when I did start writing the book, I had to almost rein myself back in because it was very activist and angry and I felt like I really needed to get the message out and I had to take a bit of a U-turn, still present the facts but also make it very practical because I do think that research is changing. I do think the guidelines will change eventually and that we as doctors will need to include sex and gender differences in medical school training but that will take years And so I wanted this book to be very much a practical manual so that women can start implementing this advice now. Um, And it's, I mean, the feedback's been amazing. And I think the fact that the overriding message is, I can't, I'm so glad that someone is listening or I've been trying to tell my GP this for years or I thought it was all in my head. And that just really solidifies why I did write this book because it wasn't just me thinking it was all all the other women who are following my page and who are coming to the page now. And I suppose it plays into the gender stereotyping narrative that we're told to be what it means to be a good girl. It's to rock in, don't put speak too loud, yeah. be quiet, please people, get on well. Um Whereas you don't talk the same way with a man who speaks up, you know, they're a hero, a maverick, a you know, a change maker. But at the same time, I get what you're saying. Sometimes you need to soften the message to get it in. Sometimes when you're shouting, it's harder for people to hear it. Yeah, that's it. And I think it's really important to stand up for what you believe in and what you're really passionate about. But like I said, if this isn't going to practically change anyone's life, then there's no point in me writing this book um, because... I need to ensure that this is a conversation starter, but also something that can start imp- that people can start implementing. And I mean, yeah, I I've had conversations with other doctors, and I feel like it's starting to trickle in. And I had a this a similar experience when I started talking about nutrition ten years ago as a medical student, because then nutrition wasn't really considered as an important part of health, or not as much. And now only in the last couple of years, is nutrition in the medical school curriculum. So I've, I feel like I've sort of been through it before. I'm not afraid to to kind of speak my mind about things that I'm, I feel passionate about. Good. Well, thank you for doing it. You also speak a little in the book about the change in our world in how we look at gender. Um, and I suppose that's an important point to make. What it means to be a woman has begun to change. Um, and you're very open to say that we're not serving the transgender community correctly in the health system either. And to accept that your lens is as a cisgender white female and yeah. it might not cover everybody. But when you begin to take on that lens, you can really see the issues that are at play. You talk a a little about um, endometriosis and how it can take a white woman eight years to be diagnosed, but a black woman is almost double that. Yeah. And you can just see that there is inequality at play here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, writing the book was hard enough to find research on 
women who are are female biologically female sex and identify as a as a woman and then it's so much harder even to find research that are looking at trans women and i also realized that a lot of the research is based on white females as well so not only is sex something to be considered it's also gender and how we identify and it's also the color of our skin and i acknowledge that and I wanted to make that really clear on the offset because I'm also a white cis woman who I have to, you know, I'm looking through my lens and my experiences as although I'm trying to be like not bring in my bias, it's impossible not to. And I think I it was really important for me to raise that and I I hope that it will also start conversations and extend that conversation so that we do have more research into trans people and we are considering considering ethnic minorities when it comes to healthcare as well i think those conversations are happening but it's impossible for me to tackle everything in one book absolutely and you're looking to change the narrative about what women's healthcare is and obviously you discuss um puberty um the menopause pregnancy and the reproductive system. But you want to move it on from that because that seems to be the narrow way we look at women's health. As you said, if there's an issue with a woman, it's bound to be her hormones. But you break the book into four sections. How did you choose what was that that was going to be? Yeah, um, again, it started as almost like a top-to-toe manual and I was like, this is becoming a textbook because I wanted me, I wanted to understand every single part of the body and how it differentiated between a man and a woman. So I was like really diving deep into this. And I was like, this is not, this is not useful for where a woman uh, as an everyday manual. So I broke it into kind of the main pillars of health or lifestyle that we all kind of operate in. And that's nutrition, movement, sleep and mood. Um, And I also have some recipes at the back. But nutrition is first and foremost, my main passion and the thing that I've I've got a master's in, it. I've worked as a nutrition doctor and I'm really passionate about that, but also movement, sleep and the mood component really fascinated me because I, I think that really plays into the whole women are hysterical and we experience, you know, worse mental health. And I found that really interesting because we do experience different mental health conditions. You know, women are twice as likely to experience anxiety or depression. But why? Like, I wanted to know why. And it's not just down to our hormones or our biology. It's also our, our how we're brought up, our cultural and social norms. You know, how we respond to stress is different. And I think what we mentioned earlier and that women are are told to like, you know, be very quiet and, and not like aggressive and, you know, just put up with it and and not cry in public and that almost feeds into the fact that we tend to experience these internalizing disorders so it's internalizing because we ruminate on it we deal with it ourselves we're not like externally like being aggressive whereas men will often act out when they're experiencing mental health problems they'll often do externalizing behaviors like drinking alcohol drinking drugs um a lot of men will kill themselves by suicide because of mental health problems, whereas women won't. And that's devastating for both sexes. But that's why we need to understand why we're so different. Um, so, yeah, there's four pillars of the book. And I talk a little bit about how they affect women differently and 
how to implement that across the lifespan. So a lot of women will say, I don't think this book is useful for me because I've gone through the menopause. It absolutely is. Or my daughter's only a teenager. It basically takes you from puberty past the menopause. And you're right, there's gender stereotypes we need to break down in both because I, I assume when you're saying you want to change the narrative, there's a few things you want to change. But one of them is that we don't want one to be seen as strong and one to be seen as, as less than. Yeah, that's it. And I think... I mean, when I brought out a book on female health specifically, I knew there would be some conversation about men's health. And often that's coming from a man that men's health is important too. And I, and that's, and yes, that's true. But the point of the book is that most of the research we have is based on men's health. And so we've got that covered. But if we're just assuming that we should treat men and women the same or males and females the same, then we're doing both sexes and all genders a disservice because we are all different and we need to understand those differences for the better health of everyone. And there is a kind of a less than mentality, isn't it? Like a man has more muscle, a a woman has more body fat. This is seen as a kind of a negative connotation. A man will have more upper body strength, a woman will have less. A man will be more steady in his mood, whereas a woman will have fluctuating hormones. We do kind of pit them against each other and see the man as better in some ways. It's time to end that conversation. Yeah, it really is. I think, you know, there are key physiological differences and anatomically we're different. We are a smaller build, but it doesn't make us inferior. And I think, you know, physically that's something that can be quite obvious. But one of the age old things that, you know, has now been absolutely disproven is that men are more intelligent than women. And that was because um, they're, that men have a heavier brain, but that is due to body size. So it's, it correlates with body size. It's nothing to do with intelligence. But years and years ago, this was written into research and it took so long to disprove. But now we know, like we've absolutely debunked that. And yet still there's this assumption that men are better suited for like the sciences or the, the, kind of, the higher up um, kind of positions and jobs, but women are just as capable. Yeah, and likewise, we've debunked that our brains operate differently, that men can't be can't. emotional or caregiving or nurturing, which yes. just isn't true. It's not true. But the more we tell that narrative, the less likely a man is to feel like he can really lean into that side of himself and he may feel like he can't talk about his feelings and then that will feed into poor mental health. So we need to really unravel all of those kind of thoughts we have about what makes a man, what makes a woman. So as you said, you've put this book in the hands of of the people that felt they weren't being listened to. And that was your number one aim to empower women with information about their own health. But where else do you see this mission going? Will you begin lobbying the, the educators, the policy makers? Is that part of what you want to do with this message? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've even, I really thought about how big it would get when I published the book. And the response has been really great. But what I would love to see is more conversation, not just within the kind of my community or the general population, but feeding into education, feeding into kind of, healthcare and policy and things like that. And I mean, in the UK, late last year, they launched the Women's Health Strategy, which was basically a call for evidence because they're acknowledging this huge gap. And they hired their first women's health ambassador, which is a minister to look after all of this. So I feel that conversations are happening slowly, 
but you do we do need to have more people behind it and I do feel like there needs to be more recognition between within that medical community that this is a really important thing and actually it's leading to very poor outcomes in female health. Well it's a a fantastic book congratulations on it because it kind of treads the line between being a, a, an educative text, but also being really easy to, to understand. And it would look lovely on any coffee table and it's all the recipes in the back. And that's not to make it fluffy for women. I'm not trying to feed into that narrative, yeah. but I think that's important. It could be one book that would be read by a particular person, but this is a real book for everybody. I would highly recommend it for any woman in your life. The book is called The Female Factor, Making Women's Health Count and What It Means for You. Dr. Hazel Wallace, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and to Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.